0: Welcome to the Highway High Five podcast where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history Using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records
1: I'm Joe And I'm Ryan And congratulations, you have found the internet's finest podcast for songs that were abandoned because you got sick on a bus. We are going to continue our ongoing series of uh, Desert Island recordings about albums that were made, written, conceived, recorded in isolation. But before we do that, we're going to start with a little bit of trivia.
0: You didn't tell me there'd be trivia.
1: Surprise!
0: You know more than I know. You know more
2: know.
1: So Joe, yes, Ryan. Last time I talked to you, you said you consider yourself a super fan of the Mountain Goats. Is that correct?
0: I have been known to be a fan of theirs in in a super way.
1: Well, we're gonna we're gonna put this uh, this fanhood, this fandom, this fandomonium to the test.
0: Do you consider yourself a super fan of the Mountain Goats? <laughs> I think,
1: okay, if we're going to scale, 10 being like the stories you hear about obsessive people following him around and, and, and you know, stalking him, and one being like, eh, I like him, I'd say I'm probably a solid five or six.
0: Okay. I've never gone into his garbage to get his children's or his or his wife's diapers at all.
1: So that's that's like a mountain goat's three. Right <laughs> Okay, we're going to put you to the test today This trivia is called Game Shows Touch Our Lives I scoured the internet to find As many of the songs that the Mountain Goats have That includes extra Glen songs Unreleased songs Live songs And I'm going to ask you To name a number of a certain amount of songs And you have to get that number Within two either way Two below or two above Alright so, for example, you are aware of the going-to songs, correct? I believe I am. Okay. So, if I were to say, how many of the going-to songs was, were the mountain goats going to a country, what would be your guess?
0: My guess would be nine. Oh,
1: just missed it. The actual answer is 12. Okay. Uh, and he went to Lebanon twice. Next question, again with the going to. How many times did he go to a foreign city or province?
0: 31. Nine times, just nine times. Oh, okay. Okay. This is going to go really well.
1: <laughs> How many times did he go to a U.S. state?
0: How many states are there again?
1: Um, I think somewhere around 50.
0: I would say 13.
1: Oh, close. Nine. Nine. Oh, man. Just missing it. How many American cities was he going to?
0: Four. Fifteen American cities. What in the world? Man. Wow. We're going to knock you down it's a peg amazing. on the mountain
1: goat scale, apparently.
0: You're the one who put me on that scale. <laughs>
1: You're the one who said you don't go through his diapers. So, all right. Right. How many standard bitter love songs are there? Five. All right. We will give you points for that. The correct answer is seven. Um, There is a standard bitter love song number eight, but number three appears to be missing. Nobody knows what happened to number three. Okay. How many songs have alpha in the title? Or some variation
2: of Alpha.
0: So you're not counting the Tallahassee songs or the Sea America right now? Nope. Nope. 29. 16. Just 16. Jeep. Yep. What is it with Tallahassee? and Or what is it with all of uh, them? It's
1: 29 exactly with all of them.
0: Yeah. I was. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So I was actually getting pretty. Okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. We'll, we'll wipe it out. I, I have no idea. All right. He likes to do songs for certain people or entities. So how many songs for does he have? 17. Wow, great job. 18, 18. Get the point on that one. How many orange balls of does he have? Four. Four orange balls of. But to get the point, you got to tell me what they are.
0: Orange ball of hate, orange ball of love, orange ball of... I don't remember the others.
2: Orange Ball of Peace
1: and Orange Ball of Pain.
0: Okay, okay. I still think I should get the point for that because you added something onto that. Yep,
1: my quiz, my rules. Sorry.
0: I got it before you even finished the question. I think that should be good.
1: (laughs) All right, how many songs that mention milk or ice cream?
0: In the title or in the lyrics or both?
1: In the title. These are all titles. Because if it was in the lyrics,
0: Countless. He's a foodie. (laughs) I will say...
1: Six. Very good. Seven. Seven. We'll get you the point on that. All right. And finally, last question. Song titles that mention yams or potatoes? Three. Dead on. Three. Way to go. You are a super
0: fan. I feel pretty good about that it's now. Pretty good. By the end. Yeah. So, how many if you,
1: if you had to guess, knowing kind of the numbers I gave you, how many total going to songs
0: did you think there were? 69-ish, like in the 60s. Nice.
1: Now it's 46. 46 total. Okay. Okay. I thought you did pretty good. That was that was kind of hard.
0: It was starting off pretty rough, but I feel like I recovered well. Yep. Okay, so let's kind of sneak out of that and get into the actual discussion today. Everybody is talking at me. I don't
2: hear a word they say only the echoes of my mind.
0: They have been talking about a journey into the interior. They know the dangers and yet they have already decided upon it. No one can talk them out of it. It is clear that their minds are made up. Their knapsacks are packed. Their guides have been chosen. They remain cool to suggestions. They smile enigmatic smiles. They no longer answer questions. That was originally written by author Carol M. Schwiller from her short story, Being Mysterious Strangers from Distance Shores. I only know this because it's printed on the B-side label of an album that I own, Corners Gambit by the Mountain Goats. In 2001, I found myself living in a gloomy railroad apartment in Astoria, Queens. For anyone unfamiliar with railroad or shotgun apartments, they're long and oppressively narrow rooms with no hallway that look somewhat similar to an actual passenger train car. The rooms are all lined up in a row and offer no privacy. In the back of this particular one was my roommate's bedroom, and the only way out of that room was to walk through my room, which led to the living room and finally to the kitchen. The bathroom, clearly an afterthought, was right off the kitchen and had a door that opened just enough to squeeze through, provided you were limber enough to be able to step over the side of the toilet to actually get all the way in. When I moved there, I knew one person, but that relationship had grown foul and destructive long before my arrival. I had various temp jobs while I was living there, but rarely any leftover income. When that was available, I spent it on Yoko Ono box sets and giant bottles of cheap wine, and sometimes food. It was mostly a debacle that I ignorantly entered into because, assuming for the eighth or ninth time that Changing my environment would change my outlook and fortune. Instead, I spent far too many nights lying drunk on the floor with my headphones on, listening to my records, making mixtapes, and then passing out. Once September of that year rolled around, my temp job came crashing down. Literally. The agency itself was in lower Manhattan, and then all of a sudden it wasn't. It was reduced to scorched earth, unfinished to-do lists, and seared char. My days then melted into extensions of my nights, but I only listened to one record over and over my last few months living there, Corner's Gambit by The Mountain Goats. I didn't know the story behind the making of the album until much later, and its provenance just enhances its resonance with me now.
1: The Mountain Goats released Coroner's Gambit in 2000, three years after their previous album, Full Force Galesburg. This might not sound like an incredibly long break between records, but some perspective might help explain why this time is important. In 1991, the Mountain Goats released their first album, a cassette-only release titled Taboo 6, The Homecoming. From that album through 1997, they had a a total of 21 releases of various types, Cassette only, CD only, 7-inch singles, split singles, 12-inch EPs, and full-length albums. In those 21 releases were 188 songs. Though in 1998, there were only 4 songs on one 12-inch. In 1999, zero. What caused this period of seeming inactivity? To try to figure this out, we need to go back to the mid-to-late 70s. John Darnielle was 9 or 10 years old, and already infatuated with music and the controversial sounds being made by bands like the Sex Pistols. Down the street from him lived an older kid named Jay Albert, who was into Devo and Iggy Pop and David Bowie, and he was just starting to get into punk as was becoming a real force. Albert's friend was Roger Painter, and the two of them were neighborhood weirdos, punks, and pranksters. They were alien-like, but also probably intriguing. Roger and Albert went on to form the band Christian Death, with Roger now calling himself Roz Williams. Williams was a well-read performance artist and musician who was informed by the likes of Rimbaud, Baudelaire, Magritte, and the Dada movement. Darniel and Williams became friends, sharing a love of books, music, film, and a history of abuse and addiction.
0: Christian Death is one of the most influential goth bands of the 1980s, despite hating to be pigeonholed as merely goth. Their work has inspired a lot of what's been created since, in the realms of goth, punk, post-punk, metal, cabaret, and beyond. Their live shows were spawned from Roxy Music, Alice Cooper, and David Bowie at their peaks, seen through the lens of John Carpenter. The sounds they made were elegantly abrasive, horrifying, and sometimes awkwardly campy, as best defined by their 1982 debut album, Only Theater of Pain. Here's a clip of the song Spiritual Cramp from that album.
2: In my chest. I my myself for
0: the Williams left Christian death in 1985 to pursue different strains of music, art, and heroin. He disappeared from the scene for a while, resurfacing a few years later, and moved from project to project with bands as well as solo albums, while always struggling with addiction. Which he talked about in detail on his 1995 spoken word release, Horse's Mouth.
2: Bite hard on that belt tied, twisting round. Bruised arms that hold nothing but contempt and distemper. Grab the juggler. Your world is dead. Loss of bodily functions and all sense of dignity. You are no longer human baby talk half-wit, an immense towering pile of shit. This is the reduction to junk heap babblings. My only,
0: your... It was around 1990 that Williams and Darnell had their final conversation. Whatever it may have been about ended in a fight with Williams allegedly trying to choke Darnell. On April 1st, 1998, Roz Williams hanged himself in the bedroom of his apartment in L.A., and halfway across the country, the Mountain Goats stopped releasing music.
1: Darnell and his wife were living in Colo, Iowa at the time. The town has a population of 868 and lies 27 miles east of Ames, Iowa. Behind the house that Darnell was living in was a small shack, where he recorded the songs that would make up much of Coroner's Gambit, using his now-famous and recently unretired Panasonic RX-FT500 boombox. His original intent with the album was to release two copies. The copy that would be CD-only would be the boombox recorded copy, while the copy released on vinyl only would have a full band behind him. Obviously, that never happened. The idea was scrapped after recording some songs with Simon Joyner and his backing band in a studio. Those songs were Elijah, Baboon, Horseradish Erode, Onions and Alphonse Mambo. Once those were recorded, Darniel was too happy with them to have split from the others, so he combined the releases into one single version, mixing band and boombox songs. The album has a few songs that don't sound much different in style from what had come previously, with even his alpha couple making an appearance. That couple, for the uninitiated, has been featured in Mountain Goat songs since the very beginning, and the album Tallahassee is all about them.
0: So that alpha couple is, man. you more recently looked this information up than I did for your quiz, but there are an awful lot of songs, almost all of them have the word alpha somewhere in the title, Mm -hmm. which makes them easier to find, I guess, except for those that are on Tallahassee, because every song is one of them on Tallahassee, as well as See America Right, the EP that came out at the same time, so those aren't titled with Alpha, but they are about that couple. Each song is from the viewpoint of one of the two in the couple, and I think the story is kind of about people who used to love each other madly, and now they don't. If you've heard No Children at any point, you'll know kind of exactly how strained and hateful this relationship is at this point. And they start in L.A., and they kind of drive all the way across to... Tallahassee. They have very little money. What money they have is spent on getting cheap motel rooms and cheap booze.
1: Do you remember the website that was set up for Tallahassee?
0: I don't. No.
1: It was like a house. It was like the alpha couple's house. I'll, I'll never forget this, and I don't remember why I remember this more than anything, but if you clicked on this note by a bottle, it was written from the... Uh, liquor store owner, and he's like, hey, I don't want to lose some of my best customers, but I think you guys might want to take it easy, maybe switch to beer and wine instead of liquor or something like that. And it was like this kind of really sad, honest note. It was almost like a novel. This whole process of this alpha couple decaying and and falling into the state and ending in the city was just such a a long, drawn-out process that it actually mirrored life and like how that stuff can, you know, take so much time and it's not a straight path. It's it's winding and there's there's lots of moments along the way that can be funny and that can be sweet. But at the end, it's spiraling towards its eventual end.
0: Yeah, it's like with each new song, they've, they're bottoming out even further.
1: Yeah. So what's the deal with Alphonse Mambo?
0: This is dumb, I think. <laughs> From the notes that I found, Alphonse Mambo's a play on Alfonso Mango. <laughs> so I don't know enough about the Alfonso Mango to know how clever that is, I guess.
1: <laughs> it doesn't, the pun, kind of depend on both parts of it being kind of equally known. and
0: <laughs> I think my puns are just so simple and generally for simple people like myself and he is much more highbrow and is pontificating
1: now see that's a pun I can get behind right there
0: John come on
1: (laughs) if we would have been more on our podcast game we would have researched these mangoes and and had some to sample during this during during this session so we could truly understand
0: we normally do more with our research (laughs) We eat what the artist ate and talked about. Yes. Typically. Yeah, um, all the time. I wore blue jeans and a white T-shirt for the Nebraska one because that's what Springsteen wore. I did it for two weeks.
1: I lived in a church for two weeks for the uh, Cowboy Junkies one.
0: I released 17 (laughs) albums for the Jandek one.
1: (laughs) So getting back to the Coroner's Gambit... One of the stories that he's talked about as as he was taking the bus from Iowa to Omaha to record with Simon Joyner, he felt real sick on the bus. And he thinks that that affected his performance a little bit with the band. And he came in with that idea of getting a whole, basically a whole album or a whole version of the album. And it just didn't happen. Which, you know, if you're not feeling very well, it's, it's hard to get, get anything on. But those songs he, he did record definitely... With the band, definitely have a different feel. They fit, but the the feel, you know, beyond the sound of having more instrumentation and stuff, is is a little bit different.
0: It is, and it's strange how fluid it still ends up sounding on the album. Absolutely. Other parts of the album are quite different from those Omaha recordings. Those are what we're going to go ahead and call for this episode the one track shack recordings, a la Link Ray. Even with some clear differences between the songs, the album is much more cohesive than any previous Mountain Goat's release. First and foremost, it's sadder, and it contains murkier songs dealing with anguish and mourning and journeys through those concerns. The protagonists of those songs process and learn to continue using interior means. And the record, according to Darneel and almost anyone who's listened to it, is about death and terminal places. The album opens up with a clip of Bessie Smith singing Haunted House Blues, which really sets up the listener with the idea of being confined and ill at
2: ease.
0: The album was originally titled Jab Jab which, as everybody knows, is a Caribbean word for someone wearing a devil costume who eats Alfonso mangoes, probably. (laughs) And the album was supposed to begin with a song called Tampa, but it ended up being cut from the final release because it was a little too dark when combined with songs like Family Happiness. The song was about finding a body buried in the snow. ¶¶
2: Fires were raging when the end you ran out to sing your own skin. But well, probably shouldn't blame you. Yeah, I probably shouldn't blame you, but by God, I do and I found the photographs in the top dresser drawer, but I ain't gonna fight your dirty little wall.
1: The most evocative song on the album, about coming to terms with living with death, is Shadow Song. John Darnielle addressed this once in a brief monologue before playing the song in 2012. He said, My friend Roz was 35 when he hung himself, and he is at this place. This is a special place for me. It took me a couple years to sort through what it feels like to have a guy who you've lost touch with, but who you were close to once, check out.
2: If you get there before me Will you light us a fire? If you get there before me Will you light us a fire? And if I never show Watch the embers glow, you can keep the fire burning. This is a song for you, in case I never make it through to where you are.
0: Island Garden Song is, according to Darneal in 2012, a song about the need for isolation and the possibility of finding something in there that you didn't know you needed. This quote from Darnell may have its origins in the story quoted at the beginning of this talk. In Carol M. Schweller's story, Being Mysterious Strangers from Distant Shores, a group of tourists are on an undisclosed journey to an indeterminate interior. And from that story, the quote that is about a page after the one that is printed on the side two of the label of the album says each one hopes though he is hardly aware of it that he will find his heart's desire and better yet find something totally unexpected he didn't even know he yearned for I will go where well, I will go I
2: will jettison all dead weight I will you words for kindling and I will sleep by the garden gate
1: Blue Jays and Cardinals is another song that is clearly about death, and another in the Mountain Goats canon with baseball references. But in this song, death is an escape as seen from someone left behind. The title of the song is in quotation marks, and the only Mountain Goats song that is, we think. When asked about this, the rarely intentionally inscrutable Darneel says, the answer is actually really simple, but I'm going to pay tribute to my late friend Roz by not telling. Ross's band, Christian Death, had an album whose title was in quotes, Ashes. And his answer regarding the, those quotation marks was one of the less satisfying answers I've ever been given about anything. In contrast the title track views the same escape from the mind of the confined the shift is from thinking a person left beauty behind to a person who's been allured by the enigmatic glamour And I think with these three or four songs that are most definitely about Roz Williams, one of the most poignant things about them is that they don't have the same perspective. There's this perspective of the person who's been left behind. There's one that feels like, Island Garden Song feels like it's been written from Roz's perspective. It seems like there's at least an effort to fully capture the complexity of dealing with this death because not only do you have it being a suicide, which, you know, you have a victim and a perpetrator in the same person, but it's also dealing with the perspective that you've lost contact and you haven't talked to this person. And it's just not a simple thing. And I can't imagine, I mean, I'm not a songwriter, but I can't imagine how difficult it would be to fully evoke all the emotions that go with that complex issue.
0: In addition to that, I I think it also sort of reaches out to people who have opinions about what suicide is and how they react and how they react to it and I think he's able to capture those ideas and make it something that people can relate to. Mm-hmm. It's a very special talent he has or skill he has. There's no
1: judgment in what he writes. And when you're writing with the emotional weight that he writes with and the topics that are things people struggle with for lifetimes, to put that in a context without judgment is is amazing and critical and important. And I think that's why a lot of people relate.
0: Trick Mirror is a track that I have yet to see mentioned as an additional Ra's song, but instead is about the relationship between Seneca and Nero, or appears to be. The song may have been originally titled Seneca's Trick Mirror, and Seneca was a Roman philosopher who is most studied for his thoughts and writings on Stoicism. From what little we know, Seneca had a pretty crazy life. He was exiled to Corsica by Caligula because he was having an affair with Caligula's sister. Seneca was then the tutor of Nero, and one of his closest advisors as Nero came to power. When things started getting really bad, he begged Nero to allow him to retire, but that request was never granted. And as Nero gained more and more power, he became more and more corrupt and loopy. An assassination conspiracy called the Pisonian Conspiracy formed, and on the day of the planned assassination, word of it reached Nero. Nero. Seneca was forced to commit suicide as one of the alleged conspirators. Nero's most well-known onslaught was that of the Christians. Let's bring it home here with, he loved Christian death above all else. (laughs) Good one. (laughs) A lot of readers think that much of Seneca's writing, which is often about morals and relationships and feelings, is autobiographical, but... What he's employing is what Darniel employs as well, and what we've talked about a lot already. They create works that apply to the audience, to strip the author as much as possible from the ideas and feelings conveyed within. This is something that Darniel does as well as almost any other songwriter. The songs feel like they were written about you specifically when they're on point, and they're on point often.
2: Fourteen years ago tonight Watched him tearing through the garden, killing everything in sight I let my curiosity Get the best of me I saw the sourceless anger eating at him from inside No one around him to stem the rising tide Evil from his head Down to his feet cry nine's bitter Sugar's sweet and blood Streets of Rome today and roll across the ocean.
1: One of the most endearing qualities of the mountain goats are the thematic heartstrings and impossibly complex amounts of allusions included in his music. See Joe's minor dissertation on Seneca for an example. <laughs> the entirety of his albums, including the cover, sleeve, liner notes, labels, music, and even his own writing about the record, instills a desire to toil over interpretation, as if it were a Rosetta Stone, but engraved with an alien math that you'll never be smart enough to decipher. Sometimes I approach his records like it was a House of Leaves-like book. I need to reorient my experience turn it upside down or sideways, or flip back and forth from word to song to sound to artwork. Fruitlessly, I look for connections that may not be there. It can be maddening, and it could be lovely. Certainly, it makes the breadth of his canon infinitely re-listenable. Who is Elijah, and where is he coming from? What does an incense factory in 1930s Calcutta have to do with insurance fraud and coping with grief? Why Slavic dances? And Wiley and Rhymes.
0: The breadcrumbs I do find lead me down paths I traversed before. Love, death, longing. Beyond the aforementioned alpha couple and the long-running going-to song travelogues, which are conspicuously absent from the record, Darneal constantly peppers into his catalog songs about gardens, food, and weather. On Coroner's Gambit, these old chestnuts are there, providing a comforting grounding along with Darniel's honest letter to his friend. But the theme on the record that stands out the most upon re-listening is the lyrics about radio waves. No fewer than six songs mention radio and radio-adjacent technology. Shortwaves, AM, transistor, stereos, and cassettes. However, this isn't clear and fun radio that you dance to in a living room or cruise a strip in a convertible with your headband on. This isn't Steely Dan's FM or Costello's Radio Radio or even the modern lover's Roadrunner. No, this is late night radio that barely contains traces of songs amongst the sea of static. It is the desperate attempt to tune to a song that is trapped between the much more powerful AM signals of the evangelical preacher in Rush Limbaugh News Radio. It is that barely formed sound that requires imagination and interpretation to recreate the song in your mind. And this idea of a staticky, low-powered radio makes perfect sense in the context of reflecting upon a friend that was lost forever after being lost temporarily. An album-long examination of how you can never fully remember someone who is gone no matter how hard you try.
1: This motif first materializes in the opening track, Jaipur, which replaced the Tampa track we played earlier, but is equally furious and intense. The song in the album starts with the seemingly innocuous line about a sweet tooth craving. I was having visions of sugar pastries, cooked up in clarified butter. However, the caloric tone of singing sends shivers down the spines of the listeners, as if a warning that this could get bad. By the time Darnell is screeching about himself being the hard-to-find station on the AM band and the landmine hidden in the sand, the poor Panasonic is pushed to the limits of its range as the tape distorts, pulses, and crackles. Grief is not mutually exclusive from anger, nor beauty from tarnish.
2: I am the killer dressed in pilgrim's clothing, I'm the hard to find stations on the AM band, I am the white sky high over Tripoli, I am the landmine hidden in the sand, yeah I came to the gates of the fabled pink city.
0: Darniel has talked about how Jaipur was about an unpleasant homecoming. That concept is immediately flipped on its ear with the second track, Elijah, which ostensibly is about another homecoming, perhaps returning from a prison stint. Gorgeous and whispered with a string arrangement that complements the otherworldliness of his singing. We can't think of a Mountain Goat song that sounds quite like it before or since, nor another recorded with him having a cold. Hm.
2: Set the table, those three extra places. One for me, one for your dads, and one for God. Let the incense burn in every room. Feel the fullness of time in the empty tomb. Feel the future kicking in your womb. I'm coming home. I'm coming home.
1: home. Family happiness has an immediate and intense rhythm that feels like it could snap at any minute. Darniel's lyrics come threats are seemingly precursors for what he would write in his sort of hit, No Children, with lines like, I hope the stars don't even come out tonight. I hope we both freeze to death. Explaining the song, Darniel says that it is a song about a couple in a car, like many of his songs, but with a ghostly entity that constantly feeds on mutual hatred. In his words, This song is about people who have chosen whatever the opposite of victory is. A theme that would be fully realized in two years on Tallahassee. Oh, by the way, the radio is tuned on in this song as well. A weather forecast predicting highs in the low teens.
0: There Will Be No Divorce was written for Darneel's wife in one of his classic slanted love songs that are simultaneously endearing and sweet while feeling lost and hopeless. Darneel says it's among his favorites on the record. The amount and depth of emotion that is evoked by him from a scene of watching a lover breathe while listening to an old man sing on the radio is incredible, especially since it's just totally creepy when I do it. Yeah, I hate when you do that to me. You saw that live link? (laughs) All the windows,
2: and the wind began to wail, and you gathered your hair behind your head, like God was gonna catch you by the ponytail. And then the old voice crackled through the static And I felt young and alive and the hair stood up. My neck. we were rising from the grave yeah yeah
1: the final track on the record we were patriots elucidates some of the imagery on the cover the song starts with the protagonist listening to dvorak on an army of shortwave radios on a warm calcutta day so you know just like a regular tuesday Dvorak was a Czech composer from the 1800s, noted for bringing folk sounds, like Slavonic dances, into his Slavonic masterworks. And while this pleasantly surreal scene seems like a meek and mild ending, especially with an accompanying bright banjo, the overall bleakness of the record crashes in on itself as you realize that the man is listening to these multitudes of radios to forget what he hasn't yet lost and he will listen and wait seemingly forever
2: long vowels spill like liquid from your mouth
0: Gambit is a culmination of lost years. Exactly what happened in that time is unknown and that's the power of lost years in people who are studied and idolized by others. You can assume, hang on clues, scour for factoids, but only that person who experienced the years as not lost knows the truth of it. It's their truth. After Coroner's Gambit, Darniel released two of his most popular and enduring records the boombox swan song of All Hail West Texas, and the first shot of a new, full, sound era in Tallahassee. He has returned to his normal, prolific output, not at the levels of the earliest years, but with a constant yield of nicely accentuated records. He's toured and made legions of fans who see him as a sort of humble spokesman for the disenchanted literati. He has written novels that are worthy of standalone art, but still carry some of the hero-worship weight. He's done an honest and funny podcast where he spends hours talking about his music and his perspectives that somehow makes you like him even more, like the opposite of Lou Reed. Imagine that, podcast. (laughs) He communicates with fans and is one of the more accessible and interesting musicians in the world. Everyone who loves his music loves him as a person more. We all feel like he's our friend. We all feel like he would be troubled by our own personal demise. And who knows, he he might be.
1: Last month, April of 2020, as the world slowly shut down, Darniel dusted off the boombox to record again. Trying to help himself and his bandmates weather the storm of lost income from a postponed tour, Darniel took a little less than two weeks to commit the fantastic album Songs for Pierre Chavon to tape. The album sold out three separate 1,000 cassette pressings in minutes. It's been well-publicized, and even caused the Mountain Goats to land on the Billboard Top 200. Probably the first ever charting album about a French historical perspective on the pagan defeat at the hands of Christianity. Unless that's what The Eagle's Greatest Hits Volume 2 is actually about. All the accolades are well-deserved. He hasn't lost a step with his personal home recordings. However, these songs were broadcast live over YouTube, streamed by scores of adoring fans, not recorded in a backyard shack in rural Iowa. Twenty years can change a lot of things. As a listener and a fan, there was a moment when I knew that our sensibilities were growing apart. While it didn't deteriorate with enmity, like the alpha couple, the drifting apart of the relationship was joyless. The new release brought back a convergence I'd assumed would never come again, and it emboldened me to know that though our journey forked, the goal is still the same. Occasionally, we are forced to return to things that we thought were lost, or maybe we thought we'd put past us. Sometimes it's a painful reminder. Sometimes it's a delightful reunion. Either way, it is full of possibilities. If there's anything we've been taught during this trying time— and a fact that's reiterated by the Mountain Goats. It is that not all isolation is created equally. You know, we've really explored different sorts of isolation with this series, you know, from physical isolation to kind of emotional isolation to forced isolation where, you know, it's to protect yourself. This one's a little bit different because even though I do think this record was a moment of isolation in a very, otherwise very prolific and public career, I do think the album has become so much to us. It's kind of become an emblem for dealing with troubling times and dealing with death and and getting past feeling alone. It's almost become hopeful, even in how kind of dark it really is when you listen to the whole record.
0: It's been a pretty important part of my life since it came out
1: and maybe short of like some of the Lou Reed episodes this is probably an artist that we both kind of feel so personally attached to and so it's sort of a different sort of episode you know usually we we're learning about it and we're we're kind of surprised at the discovery and stuff of this new thing but with the mountain goats it's it's not that at all it's surprising to learn the context of it and how that context interacted with our own feelings about it. Cause I mean, I didn't know any of this about it. I just kind of knew it as his death album, his album about losing somebody knowing the full story and how it was recorded and, and how it was this trying experience where, you know, it seemed like it took him a long time to get what he wanted on that record and I think you told me, and I don't know if we've mentioned this. This is the album where he says he starts to kind of feel like he figured it all out, and where he, you know, he sort of started doing what he wanted to do.
0: Yeah, it came up in multiple interviews where he said that's kind of the the line where he came into his own and uh, wasn't practicing anymore.
1: It's a great record, and I will say, sort of tangentially researching the Ross William guy and not that not being a style of music i know much about he seems like a really kind of interesting guy yeah yeah you know certainly a dark story but um i've kind of enjoyed learning about him i guess that would be that kind of new discovery thing we talk about it's like it's it's been interesting for me to kind of know about that connection and start to learn a little bit about him and what he did
0: and we will post links to all of the places that we used as sources there are a lot of them but it was especially for me the annotated mountain goat site uh, we will put information up about that and as well as the podcast i mentioned in some other places where we found interviews so all of that will be in our show notes
1: The mountain goats is like one of the only bands maybe along with like bob dylan or the pogues where you need like a a companion site to kind of help you get all the references it's like ezra pound's cantos or something where you can't read it on its own you need you need some extra books to help you figure out what's going on
0: that that happens to me with like charles m schultz things so.
1: <laughs> all right Well, you want to play a couple tracks
0: sure let's do it i'll never be a girl, we'll never...
1: Alright, I'm gonna start first with my song This is the Extra Glens with a song called Going to Lubbock Going to Lubbock by the Extra Glens, and the Extra Glens are John Darnielle and another guy named Franklin Bruno. Franklin Bruno was in a band, Nothing Painted Blue, and he is a constant companion of Darnielle. And they did the Extra Glens for a long time, and then they released a record record as the Extra Lens. But Franklin Bruno is a great songwriter in his own right, and Nothing Painted Blue has some amazing, amazing songs, and uh, I recommend checking them out. Uh, but this is this is a, a great fun song. It was from a seven-inch on Harriet Records that came out all the way back in 1993, so real early into real, real early into their careers, and it's just a song about driving out in the middle of Texas and digging up a skull and putting that skull on the back of your car, except it sounds so nice and sweet. We we were trying to play maybe a couple John Darnielle songs that maybe some people hadn't heard, and this is one that if you hadn't heard and you like the old boombox stuff, this is a song that's a real treat.
0: And check out some of the Franklin Bruno stuff. That's how I first got introduced to the Mountain Goats was because of a shrimper compilation called Abridged Perversion that had a Franklin Bruno song on it called Clean Needle, which I think is one of the greatest songs ever. And I would recommend anybody going out and checking that out or finding that compilation specifically. There's Mountain Goats, Extra Glens, Lou Barlow, and Franklin Bruno on there as well as others. It's it's really the whole thing is really good.
1: So I was um I don't want to get you sued or anything, but I was Trying to find that song just to listen to it this week, when we were trying to think of songs to play, and so I came across a YouTube video by a certain person I know. The music, you know, is just a normal video, except the pictures that go with video are just (laughs) pictures of kind of normal-looking food, like TV dinners and mac and cheese and stuff. (laughs) And the cam, the camera just slowly pans into each one, and the video is just like forty-five different plates. With the song Clean Needle playing behind it. great.
0: Sounds like a pretty great video.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's some, yeah.
0: There's
1: some visionary of the um, music video uh, industry, I'm sure.
0: Sounds edgy.
1: <laughs> there's one, it's like Salisbury steak or beef
0: stroganoff. It's just. Oh, I remember. <laughs> I, I probably still have the photo somewhere on my hard drive.
1: Uh, I don't know who cooked it, but the, I'm glad I didn't have to eat it.
0: Salisbury steak is good. It's almost turkey loaf good.
1: How many songs does John Darniel have that say Salisbury in them? Two. At
0: least. For the next song, I'm going to play something off of uh, 12-inch that we mentioned. So at the beginning of that talk, we, we went over the releases that the Mountain Goats had from 1991 to 1997. And then we mentioned one release in 1998, the only thing he released. It contained four songs. It was a 12-inch record, and it was called New Asian Cinema. And the song we are going to play next is from that, and it's called Nara Kaloka. Right, that was Nara Kaloka, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, off of New Asian Cinema, which was the only thing The Mountain Goats released in 1998, and it came on the Yo-Yo Records label, and I don't remember when I got it, probably around then, when it came out, I'm sure, and it is a song that I played not only because it came out in 98 and we had talked about that, but also because it talks about radios again he doesn't stray far from radios too often it also talks about jakarta cabbages french toast it runs the coroner's gambit if you will of the mountain goat tropes sort of it's a really wonderful song i think all four songs on that 12 inch are really great and if you go through the annotated notes or mountain goat notes on that song i'll just put a link it's Worth hearing, I'm sure nobody wants to hear me go in any further on things like Seneca, but it is, it's is—it's really fun to read that stuff. All the things he sort of dropped in there about things that you don't even notice that are there, but they become really integral to the song once you do know.
1: Do you know when it came out in 1998?
0: So I don't know exactly when it was released in 98, But the record itself is pretty cool. The side A, and I'll put a picture up there of this, but the picture is silly on the side A because it's just a blank white label like a bootleg. But side B is etching, which I always love. And there's writing in there, there are pictures. It's really wonderful. I don't know if I can capture all of the pictures on there, but I'll try. And on this 12 inch, John Darniel's wife plays banjo. And she also plays banjo on one Silver Jew's record, Lookout Mountain, Lookout Sea, which I had no idea about until I started doing research for this. I love that album. I never even noticed it.
1: All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed our uh, episode on The Coroner's Gambit. We definitely enjoyed researching and talking about it. and we have I would say Joe and I have probably reminisced more talking and thinking about this than we have on any episode I can think of just cuz we do have so many memories wrapped up especially about when we first met. So, it's been it's been good. We want to say thank you to our um our podcast network Pantheon. They um had some big news. Some of the some of the podcasts are going the first going to be for the first ever HD podcast. Uh, they're working with Neil Young's uh audio people, so that's that's a real cool thing. Don't worry, we're still going to be recording on the Panasonic Boombox. So you'll still get our normal fidelity, but... um,
0: We're just D. (laughs) No H. We don't need it.
1: (laughs) Sometimes we're barely D, like a lowercase D. Uh, Or, yeah, D-. (laughs) (laughs) minus. So check out other great music podcasts at Pantheon. And um, as always, please, please, please go out and support artists. Uh, Go buy a record go buy a Mountain Goats record. I would tell you to go buy that tape, but I think it's sold out. I don't know if they're going to do another pressing or not. They sold out really fast. And I would tell you to go get Corner's Gambit, but the vinyl version of that is pretty expensive.
0: It is. We didn't even talk about what records we have. I just, if there are fans listening, I feel bad because I was lucky enough to start listening and buying in the mid-90s, so I got very lucky.
1: I mean, they didn't put out very many. Like, he didn't press many, did he?
0: Oh, of Corner's Gambit?
1: Of any of them.
0: I don't know what the run was on any of them.
1: It doesn't seem like there are many of them.
0: It doesn't. And this was on Absolutely Kosher Records. It's not a label that would have put out a ton of records.
1: Looks like on Discog's limited edition with a thousand copies of Corner's Gambit.
0: Okay. And that record came out with like a tissue outer sleeve around the jacket. Pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And it's a really great record. It's on white vinyl and it sounds good. It sounds really good as I've listened to that thing hundreds of times.
1: But the, lots of the newer mountain goats records are still in press on vinyl. So, um, as, as much as we put him on a pedestal, I'm sure he would appreciate any and all, um, business you could get them and I mean Tallahassee is a fantastic record you know Sunset Tree's good I mean all his new stuff is like Joe said it's maybe not we don't love it as much as we love the Boombox stuff but that's not because it's not good it's just because we have different memories and different attachments to it
0: that new one Pierre Chauvin is oh it new one's great fantastic and even if I don't feel like I connect as quite in the same way as with the boombox stuff And a couple after that, I still have every single, every time he puts out an album, I pre-order it. I will always support everything he does. Yeah.
1: He's, yeah, he's great and worth it. Um, But if, if, you know, go out and get something. Record stores really need help. Artists really need help. So please, please, if you can, uh, I know everybody's hurting a little bit, but if you can, please go out and support them and keep the music that we love going.
0: And check us out on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram, and our name on both of those is Highway HiFi fi Pod. We're on Facebook. We have an email address. Email us anything you want or any requests or just chat. Our email address is Podcast at gmail.com.
1: All right. Well, we appreciate you listening. Reach out. We'd love to hear from you. If you got any other ideas for good isolation records, we'd love to hear them. And we will see you next time. Unless that's what Thriller was actually about. Unless that's what Goodbye Yellow Brick Road was actually about. Unless that's what Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell was actually about. Unless that's what Taylor Swift's 1989 was actually about. Unless that's what Green Day's Dookie was actually about.
3: It's NFL Draft Season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football